All right, everybody. Um, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about today social justice in the suburbs. And I'll share with you who I am. My name is Kyle Reynolds, um, part of Mission Gathering for a few years now, back when um, we were in Issaquah even. And that's where we hail from is um, Issaquah Sammamish area, very much a suburb. What is, there we go. Um, I couldn't like turn. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I'm in, um, I'm still in school, um, getting, I'm finishing up a doctoral program with a, a doctorate in ministry with an emphasis on cross-cultural engagement. Um, so focusing a lot on advocacy, systemic racism, um, gender equality, uh, all, all the fun stuff. So that's, so I'm just finishing up and I'm um, in the process of, I just got my final project thesis approved and um, with some caveats, but that's normal. <laughs> and I wanted to just run by you some stuff I've been like thinking about that will hopefully, that's, I'm trying to get into this final project. So you're just gonna be a bunch of guinea pigs for 27 minutes or something. Sound good? Um, and uh, like I said, uh, we, we own a small business. We are the, the fastest growing magnet company in the world currently. Um, so <laughs> we're pretty excited about it. Um, just a whole lot of magnets right now in our home. Um, and that's uh, my wife and my son. My oldest is with his grandpa today. Um, okay, let's just jump in. And, and, and it will feel less like a sermon, more like a podcast. It will, um, I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And um, my hope is that some of the stuff will be like, yeah, I didn't resonate with that. That's fine. But maybe one or two things I share will really be helpful for you moving forward. Um, and I want to concentrate on the suburbs because I think there's some unique characteristics of the water that we swim in. Um, I'm assuming most of us come from the suburbs. If you don't, you, you have some, you know, you're, you're in one now, so you have some, some semblance of it. I've li we've lived in the suburbs most of our lives uh, in the Pacific Northwest in, in Washington. Uh, I was a, a full-time vocational pastor in another life for like 15 years, all in, in uh, almost all suburban context. And I think there's some interesting dynamics. One, uh, if we're going to talk about social justice in the suburbs, we have to confront the idea that the suburbs were very much a result of social injustice, right? So you got to start there. Um, and I'm talking about redlining and white flight and many other factors that, that play into the creation of the suburbs that now I enjoy. Um, and I love where I live. I really do. I love our neighbors. I love a lot about it. But there's some double-edged um, sword nature to, to living in the suburbs that, that influences how I care for those um, that are vulnerable people groups around me, my neighbors. Um, so when I choose to live in the suburbs, it often means I'm also choosing um, three things. Power, um, which another, another way of putting this, I think, would be dominion. Um, so I have the ability um, to live where I live, and we love it, but most of the world um, is not an economic place where they could afford to live in the location that I do. And, and I'm really grateful for that, but that's also factors into how I view and how I care and how I see people. Um, another one is safety. Um, I chose the suburbs, and as many of you did, because either unconsciously or consciously, um, it felt safer than um, the inner city, right? I, I, uh, I, I think of that documentary that came out a few years ago called Seattle is Dying. Um, not a fan of that for a variety of reasons, 
but it definitely depicted Seattle's like this like horrible underbelly. Um, of, and I just, well, it's just not true. Um, but two, it, 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 um, it capitalized on the fears of suburban people. And, and, and so we, I move here because it's safer, right? Um, and along with safety is a sense of comfort, that it's just more comfortable in a lot of ways um, for certain people. Um, and lastly, I choose the suburbs because it oftentimes means I'm choosing consumerism or consumption, I'd say, um, some sense of commodification, that there's easy access to goods. Um, and, and so all of these factors, plus a lot more that I won't even get into today, I think influence um, how I see and how I care for my neighbors around me. Um, so I'm just going to go into each, uh, each one individually, okay, and hopefully have some practicals. But I, above all, I just, I, I hope you leave with a one or two things that like, yeah, that's something that I'm going to, that's going to stick with me. So for the first thing is, um, is power. So I used to work as a volunteer coordinator at the Issaquah Food Bank. Love that place. Um, after working there for a year, I only love it more. I, I am so... Um, impressed and inspired by the ways in which they f keep dignity at the forefront of everything that they do. Um, and it, it influences every decision they make. And um, they're just some of the most lovely people um, that work there and volunteer there. But as a volunteer coordinator, one thing I was super surprised by was a couple of our um, volunteers that were there every single week and had been there for every for years every single week also happened to be super racist like overtly so like I would be standing next to them and they'd make some comments about clients coming in to receive services and it wasn't I mean it was just very blatant and clear overt racism right um, and so that took me by surprise because I'm like how could someone so kind and caring also be just really racist um, and then we started making some changes within the food bank. So it used to be a model um, where the volunteers would stand on one side of the table and on the other side of the table would be all the clients and we would pre-package all of these different um, bags of food and, um, and we'd just be very much assembly line handing out the same different package or different packages the same to different families. And every, every family would get the same package. Volunteers on one side of the table, clients on the other. And we started shifting things from that model to more of a grocery store model, where instead of uh, volunteers being behind a table, they're now out on the floor. And now clients are actually able to select the kind of um, groceries they'd like. Some prefer more ripe bananas and some less. Some prefer red onions over yellow onions. Um, and they got to shop, to browse. And the volunteers were not any more uh, handing over pre-selected items, but now they're answering questions and even helping clients out to the car um, with their groceries, right? And this change of dynamic um, frustrated the really racist ones. Uh, they were really uncomfortable with that. Even more so, it got more apparent because I started really encouraging clients to volunteer. So the line got increasingly more blurred. Um, and so when he was talking smack about some client, he didn't know if the volunteer he's talking smack to is also a client, right? Uh, which blurred the line even more. And I, I saw some of these volunteers eventually leave um, because they're, they were uh, uncomfortable enough they no longer wanted to be there. And that really forced me to like try to understand what's happening here. And what I realized is that um, 
a couple things. If, 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 if racism, how I've heard it said, and this is oversimplistic, but I, I think it actually works pretty good, is prejudice plus power, right? So I'm prejudging someone, and yet I have the power because the, of my whiteness to, um, to, to see them as inferior and act in a way that is superior to them, right? Um, that's prejudice plus power equals racism. If that's true, then charity is equals generosity plus power. And what's the common denominator there? Power. And so no wonder they didn't like to be moved out from behind the table out on the floor because the power dynamic started to shift and equalize. And that was what was ultimately, as caring as they were, they didn't want to give up their power. And, and that haunts me as someone that lives in the suburbs with a lot of um, unconscious and conscious power in play. That um, I, I'm reminded of this, this quote that's been attributed to Martin Luther King. I put it up here because it's a bit tricky, but it says, in the North, they don't care how high you get, but how close you get. In the South, they don't care how close you get, but how high you get. I just, I, I love that because it, it gives a more dynamic view of racism. That in, in, in where we live, most of my neighbors probably voted for Obama, right? But how many people of color am I friends with and am invited over to their house for, right? So close, no, but high, yes. And the reverse is true in other areas of the country. And this are, these are stereotypes, of course, but there is a lot of truth to that. And so when I'm talking about the suburbs and social justice and power, I have to also recognize that it's not just power dynamics, but it's also proximity that I have to confront. And where am I lacking? As someone that wants to engage people to meet the needs of, of our society, to engage in social justice, the injustice oftentimes occurs in the lack of proximity or the unequal distribution of power. I got I to gotta be more wise to what's happening around me and the impact of my whiteness on the society that I care for. Um, does that help? We'll keep moving if it didn't. Um, <laughs> another one is safety, right? Um, and I, I chose the suburbs because I think unconsciously I saw it as a safe place to raise my kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong inherently with any of these characteristics I'm mentioning today. It's the misuse of them that is unhealthy. Um, and so I'm, I'm reminded of like the story, my son, my oldest who's in here today, he, um, 13, he was coming home from middle school and he can walk to Pine Lake Middle School and then he's walking home, he crosses this road and then he kind of enters into like the, um, uh, this QFC parking lot area, and it's got a Starbucks and a, a subway and a gas station. And he stopped at the gas station with his friends to um, get a Slurpee, and then he's like walking home, and he walks by this um, woman that's experiencing houselessness, okay? And she's got a sign asking for money, and so he gives her um, the change from his Slurpee, leftover from his Slurpee. And so we're sitting around at dinner, and we're talking about this, and he, he brought it up, and um, and he just goes, Dad, I just, I don't know, like, how I feel about that. Because it's like, here I am enjoying this nice big gulp Slurpee, and I just give this lady my leftover change, and I just felt weird about it, and I felt, like, compassionate for her, and I'm just trying to draw out from him, how did you feel, buddy? And um, he's, also, he's like, I also felt guilty, and I, I just, I don't know what I should have done there. And I, I, and I got a little emotional, which isn't uncommon at our dinner table. <laughs> um, 
And I, just, I was just like, I'm just glad that you chose to feel anything. I'm glad that you're like wrestling with this. I'm glad it's not easy. I'm glad you're like, it's haunting you, buddy. Like, I could not be more proud of you for choosing to feel. And I, and, and I think that's, that's, that's my hope for my family, um, that we would choose to feel. Because I think oftentimes the ways we, we, we um, opt out of feeling is we make a predetermined decision. Like, I've heard friends that say, I never give money to homeless people. Or I've had friends that say, I always give money to homeless people. I always have like an extra $5 bill and I give them $5. And I would argue that either approach is a predetermined decision unconsciously meant to keep me from feeling. And I, I, think, I think I need to choose to feel in every single situation that it... it forbids me from walking by that person as if they're a street lamp, but they're a human being on the corner asking for help. That should force me to feel. Instead of doing all these bypassing and, and, and um, magic tricks to keep me from doing that. I, I, I love my friend, uh, Tony Chris, who's, uh, he's just the best. It, he says, uh, I like to give money to homeless person, uh, when I give money to a homeless person, I like to give them like 20 bucks because you can get like really drunk on 20 bucks. Um, I just love, and he like paused there for a little bit to let everyone be like, I don't know how I feel about that. And then he just goes, because if I didn't have anyone to call for a place to sleep, I'd want to get really drunk that night too. I, I get that there's like a lot of problems with that statement, but it's not like, don't miss the point, Right. The point is that um, it's causing him to feel a sense of empathy, right, and compassion to put himself truly in the shoes of someone that is experiencing houselessness and to try to ask the, not the easy question of what do they need, but why do they need it? Um, it for instance, like if you and I chatted out here um, after we're done here and we chit-chatted for like three minutes or something and I was really really good at my questions I was asking you and I was trying to uncover the needs of your life and everything um, I might get out of you that maybe you're hungry and you just want to get lunch um, because we just chatted we got to know each other and it's been a whopping three minutes I, I don't expect you know but if if we became closer friends and after a few months maybe even a few years of becoming close I might finally, finally uncover the actual visceral need, the heart need of your life. I might uncover that you just lost someone close to you and you're just experiencing a lot of grief right now and it's just been really hard and you feel lonely. Or maybe you were betrayed by someone that you cared about or there was a loss of a, of a dream that you're really hoping for. My point is that I'm not going to get that after three minutes. You're not going to divulge your life story. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just only going to see the surface needs of your life at best. And so as I engage my community in social justice, as I engage those vulnerable people groups, I have to come with that kind of posture, right, of choosing to feel, of moving beyond my personal safety and engaging in a way that is uh, dignifying of them and allowing um, not just the, the parent physical needs of their lives, but recognizing it's a full human with a full expression of needs in their lives as well. 
Um, it, it essentially moves me from a sense of pity to compassion. Another way of putting it is, um, is, is it's, it's, my, it's my different kind of position towards grief. I, I've, um, with my ministry background, I've, I've, just, I've been in a lot of funerals. And I've, I've seen a lot of, um, of just grief played out and, and try to navigate with people what that looks like. And I, I'll tell you, there's a world of difference between someone coming up to someone else that's, that's mourning and saying, I'm so sorry for your loss, compared to, can I sit with you for a little bit? I would love for you to share a story about them. I'd love to learn why you love them so much. That's a world of difference. If you've experienced grief, you know. One is pity, the other is compassion. One is um, a bit more transactional in approach and, and safe. And the other is a bit more risky, but deeply vulnerable and transformational. Uh, essentially what I'm saying is, it's, it's a, a, the official term for it is trauma-informed care. So um, I, was, I used to work in, um, in Seattle um, with a variety of different social justice organizations, and one of them shared with me a story about this policy they had in their, at their homeless youth shelter about um, no uh, weapons allowed. Makes a lot of sense, right? I'm on board too, totally. Until uh, one night that they, um, they found this girl, she was about 13 or 14, um, getting ready to fall asleep at the, at the shelter, and they discovered that she had a knife underneath her pillow. And so policy states that um, you have to be removed forever and you can never come back. But trauma-informed care would move from the what to the why. Why in the world would this 13-year-old girl need a deadly weapon underneath her pillow in order to feel safe enough to go to sleep? Why? That makes me feel less safe because I'm more vulnerable. I'm choosing to feel and something mutually transformational has the opportunity to occur in both of our lives, right? So maybe this, this message is less about um, how do we um, end homelessness in, in, in Bellevue and more like how do we cultivate compassion in our lives when there's some mitigating circumstances based upon where we live that keep us from feeling and becoming the kind of um, loving people that we actually really want to be. Um, Oh, one more word about safety. Commuting is, is, um, is unique to the suburbs, right? For many of us still, we, if we're not um, working from home, which is its own sense of comfort and safety, right? <laughs> you just work in your slippers all day. Um, business on top, party on the bottom. We, um, sorry, I just thought we had to giggle there. Um, we, uh, we commute, and, and if, you, if you zero in on like, just the nature of what it looks like to commute, it's interesting like psychological things that occur. You are getting into a vehicle that is customized completely for your comfort, right? You have the temperature exactly what you want it to be at, as long as you don't have someone commuting with you. You have your coffee with you that's just hopefully at the right temperature. You have just the right podcast or, or music playing from your Spotify. Everything's just customized for you. And then you're magically transported to the place where you're supposed to um, work, and then you're magically transported back. And I would argue, if I'm going to discover Christ, I've always discovered him in the in-between, and the commute keeps me from the in-between. It keeps me from the margins of society. I go over the bridge where I will find Christ. 
right? And, but I've discovered over and over again in my, I don't know, 20-ish years of trying to follow this Jesus that every time I've experienced Christ, it's been in the most inconvenient, um, uncomfortable, um, unexpected places of my life. The margins of my world is where I've always seen that you were hungry and you fed me. You know, you were thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. It's always where I, I've discovered Christ, where my spirituality's come alive. When you did to the least of these, you did it unto me. That's where I find Jesus. Okay, so power, safety, and lastly, consumerism. Or consumption would be another way to put it. Let me put you, give you this, oh, there it is, um, this, this little advertisement. I just Googled, like, I think, in homelessness or something, charity. I just Googled, like, real quick, and this is just, the image came up. But let's take a close look at this, because there's some interesting things that are occurring in this, right? Notice the woman. Um, she's not smiling. She has dirt on her face. Her... Um, Pants, I don't think, are fashionably ripped. I think they're actually ripped. I, I wonder if she gave permission for this organization to use her picture in this way. I, I wouldn't say that's a flattering look of this woman. I don't know if she would be excited to post that on her Facebook uh, as a selfie. And ultimately what that's saying is it, it's defining her by what she lacks. And the hero in this advertisement is you and I, because you and I have the power to be able to end homelessness. And so we're defined by what we have, while she's defined by what she lacks. And I would argue that it is inherently undignifying to define anyone by what they lack. Uh, biblically, the Bible didn't start in Genesis 3, it started in Genesis 1, that you were made in the image of God, right? Forever loved forever known, worth dying for, like the Imago Dei. You are defined by what you have, not by what you lack. And that is inherently dignifying of humanity. Um, and also, I think to take, to take a step further, I think it commodifies her a little bit. I think it turns her into an, um, a way for, to fundraise, which I get it, like charities need to fundraise, um, but it commodifies her in a way that like it, um, it's asking for a return on investment, that if you give this money, then it will end homelessness. But there's some problems there that I think, because if that's the way we see the world, is everything is a commodity, and if I give you my $1.65, you give me a cheeseburger. And if I give you this money, you'll end homelessness. And if I give you this, um, this money in, this, in the can that you have, then you'll feel better. If everything's a transaction, right, that I, I think we start losing that sense of dignity in how we view ourselves and others. I, I saw this in my long career as an evangelical pastor. Um, we would put together these, these, these service teams to go uh, landscape a yard in an impoverished home, Right? And we would uh, rebark her lawn, and after a whole long afternoon of making it look amazing, and the before and after, we give her a flyer to our church. And the whole idea was, we did something nice for you, so you should come to our church. Um, and I think that's problematic. I do. I think it's transactional. Or when I was a youth pastor for a long, long time, um, the whole strategy was, if you bring in a whole lot of youth, then their parents will come and start tithing. It's a strategy. It's a commodification of teens. Um, even when it comes to like um, 
well, I'll skip over that one. Um, when it comes to our faith, I've heard, I, used to, I used to preach this. I used to say, Jesus died for you so that you could live for him. That God needs an ROI on his investment, a return. And when I think of that, I think of the words of Nietzsche, who said that God is dead. And um, what he was getting at was that, that like, if Christians really lived out this, this thing that they espoused to, that it doesn't make any sense. It's not economical. It's really stupid. It's like it's, it's scandalous and, and illogical. And in that way, I think, um, I think our, our biggest critics can be our greatest, greatest teachers. I think that God is dead because I think it was born from, um, from cons- consumerism. I think the reality is, is that, that this invitation that God gives to us is scandalous. I think it's generous and reckless. I think it's extravagant. It reminds me of the shepherd that would leave 99 sheep just to chase after you. Like that, if I, we ran our business like that, we would fail miserably. That makes zero economical sense. You leave that sheep to die. And I think that's the point. I think um, there is an extravagance to the love of God. I think there's zero ROI. I think it's, um, well, I, I think it's love for love's sake. Um, I want to show you this last picture. Because as, as a raging liberal as I am, <laughs> I am so conservative about the trinity of God. It informs my life in so many ways. And I could give you an hour on this particular iconography and the colors and all the different meanings behind it. Um, but it's essentially a, a, an icon of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And you notice how their, their heads are bowed to one another, mutual submission, this cosmic dance. This, um, and then, of course, there's a space at the table where you and I are invited to. But this, this sense that, um, that God the Father loves God the Son, and God the Son loves God the Spirit, and God the Spirit loves God the Father, and it circles over and over again, everlasting in eternity, long before you and I existed, long after. And what that tells me is, uh, among many things, but pertaining to this message, is that God is not insecure, right? So God doesn't need you to express his love. That would make love into a feeling like the similar way that God is hungry. No, the Trinity reveals something far better, that God is not merely loving, that God is love.